Hi, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I didn't do a Witness Wednesday episode because I had somebody scheduled to do it with, but they had to reschedule on me until Saturday. So I'm going to go ahead and just skip Witness Wednesday. We're going to go right to Theology Thursday, which will put me ahead so that you can start getting these uh, podcasts in the morning rather than in the evening of that day. So we're going to do Theology Thursday today, and then this week on Saturday, you will hear my Witness Wednesday episode. So stay tuned for Theology Thursday on our second day discussing the Trinity. Reformed and Evangelical, Confessional and Missional. Welcome to Creeds and Deeds. Maskell of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the, to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wondrous deeds that he has done. The Word of the Lord from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4. Hear the Word of the Lord from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 23. What offices do, does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Answer. Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Hear the word of the Lord from the New Testament, John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? 
Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So that, then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, thanks for joining me for Theology Thursday. So last week we started talking about the uh, Trinity, and I was using um, the uh, John Calvin's Institutes, the chapters there on the Trinity, but I found this thing this week when I went to I went to a new church to try it out last week, and I found this thing called What is the Trinity, which was written by R.C. Sproul, and um, I thought that it's really good on how it describes the Trinity. So we're going to use this for the next weeks to discuss the Trinity. And uh, this is five chapters, so we'll probably go over it one chapter a week. And so today we're going to look at chapter one, which establishes that um, monotheism, that we only believe in one God, that Christian is a mono Christianity is a monotheistic religion. The concept of the Trinity has emerged as a touchstone of truth, a non-negotiable article of Christian orthodoxy. However, it has been a source of controversy throughout church history, and there remains much confusion about it to this day, with many people misunderstanding it in some serious ways. Some people think that the doctrine of the Trinity means that Christians believe in three gods. This is the idea of tritheism which the church has categorically rejected throughout its histories. Others see the Trinity as the church's retreat into contradiction. For instance, I once had a conversation with a man who had a PhD in philosophy, and he objected to Christianity on the grounds that the doctrine of the Trinity represented a manifest contradiction, the idea that one can also be three at the heart of the Christian faith. Apparently, this professor of philosophy was not familiar with the law of non-contradiction, that law states, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. When we confess our faith in the Trinity, we affirm that God is one in essence and three in person. Thus, God is one in A and three in B. If we said that he is one in essence and three in essence, that would be a contradiction. If we said he is one in person and three in person, that also would be a contradiction. But, as mysterious as the Trinity is, perhaps even above and beyond our capacity to understand it in its fullness, the historic formula is not a contradiction. Before we can talk about the Trinity, we have to talk about unity, because the word Trinity means tri-unity. Behind the concept of unity is the biblical affirmation of monotheism. The prefix mono means one or single, while the root word theism has to do with God. So, monotheism conveys the idea that there is only one God. The Evolution of Religions the issue of whether the Bible is uniformly monotheistic came into question in the fields of religion and philosophy during the 19th century. One of the most dominant philosophers of the 19th century was Friedrich Hegel. 
Hegel. He developed a complex and speculative philosophy of history that had at its core, co core a concept of historical development or evolution. In the 19th century, thinkers were preoccupied with the concept of evolution, but not simply with respect to biology. Evolution became almost a buzzword in the academic world and in the scientific community, and it was applied not only to the development of living things, but also to political institutions. For instance, so-called social Darwinism understood human history as the progress of civilizations. Hegel's followers also applied these evolutionary ideas to the development of religious concepts. They worked with this assumption. All spheres of creation, including religion, follow the pattern of evolution we see in the biological realm, which is evolution from the simple to the complex. In the case of religion, this means that all developed religions evolved from the simple form of animism. The term animism denotes the idea that there are living Sorry, it just my computer just went crazy there. Uh, the determinism denotes the idea that there are living souls, spirits, or personalities in what we would normally understand to be inanimate or non-living objects, such as rocks, trees, totem poles, statues, and so on. The idea that a primitive religion was animistic seemed to be confirmed by scholars who examined primitive cultures that had survived to the present. Scholars who went to the remote corners of the earth and studied the religions of these cultures found that they contained strong uh, elements of animism. So, the assumption was accepted that all religions began with animism and progressively evolved. Some scholars believed that animism could be found in the earliest pages of the Old Testament. They often cited the account of the fall, for Adam and Eve were tempted by a serpent that assumed personal characteristics. He could reason, speak, and act with volition. Critics also referred to the experience of Balaam, whose donkey was enabled to speak. Thus, they showed that the biblical writers believed there was a spirit in the donkey, just like there was a spirit in the serpent. When I was in seminary, I heard a professor say that animism was being practiced when Abraham met the angels by the oaks of Mamre. The professor said that Abraham was really conversing with the gods in the trees. However, there is not a shred of evidence in that text that Abraham was engaged in any kind of animism. Those who hold to an evolutionary view of religion say that the next step in the process was polytheism, many gods. Polytheism was common in the cultures of antiquity. The Greek religion, the Roman religion, the Norse religion, and many others had a god or goddess for almost every human function. A god of fertility, a god of wisdom, a god of beauty, a god of war, and so on. We're all familiar with this idea from our studies of mythologies of the ancient world. Simply put, people believe that many gods existed to serve various functions of human life. After polytheism, the next stage of religious development is called henotheism, which is a sort of hybrid between polytheism and monotheism, a transitional stage, as it were. Henotheism is the belief in one god, the prefix hen, comes from the Greek word for one, a different word for mono, but the idea that there is one god for each people or nation, and each one reigns over a particular geographical area. For example, Henotheism would hold that there was a god for the Jewish people, Yahweh, a god for the Philistines, Dagon, a god for the Canaanites, Baal, and, a god, and so on. However, this view does not posit that there was only one god ultimately. 
Henotheistic peoples recognized that other nations had their own gods, and they often saw battles between nations as battles between gods of the peoples. Some scholars find this idea in the Old Testament because many of the conflicts recorded there are cast as the god of Israel going up against Dagon, Baal, or any uh, or another pagan god, but that does not mean that Israel was henotheistic. The Bible, monotheistic from the outset. Assuming this evolutionary framework, the 19th century critics challenged the idea that the Bible is consistently monotheistic. There was an ongoing debate as to whether the monotheism began in Israel. The more conservative of these critics said that there were hints of it at the time of Abraham. Others said that monotheism did not begin till the time of Moses. Some even rejected the idea that Moses was a monotheist, saying that monotheism did not begin until the time of the prophets, such as Isaiah, around the 8th century BC. A few were even more skeptical, arguing that monotheism did not begin until after the Israelite exile in Babylon, making it a rather recent development in the Jewish religion. So, Orthodox scholarship has had to battle for the past hundred plus years to defend the idea of the unity of God in Scripture. Orthodox arguments hold that monotheism was present at the very beginning of biblical history. We read in the very first first verse of scripture, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation narrative affirms that the God who introduced on the first page of the Pentateuch has the entire creation as his domain, not just as the limited geographical boundaries of the Old Testament Israel. God is sovereign over heaven and earth, having made them at the word of his command. Critics often note that in the early chapters of scripture, there is a vacillation between two names for God. On one hand, God is referred to as Jehovah or Yahweh, and on the other hand, he is called Elohim. That name Elohim is striking because the suffix him is the plural ending of the Hebrew noun. So one could translate the name as Elohim as gods. However, while the name Elohim has a plural ending, it always appears in, with singular verb forms. So the writer was saying something that could not be interpreted to mean many gods. Plus, as I noted above, God is revealed to us in the opening chapters of Genesis as the one who is sovereign over all things. So I think that those who hold to the name Elohim hints at, or so I think that those who hold that the name Elohim hints at a polytheism are jumping to an incorrect conclusion. When we come to Exodus 20, the account of the giving of the law, we see that the first commandment God gave on Sinai was strongly monotheistic. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Some would say that this verse gives evidence of henotheism because God is implying that there are other gods and that the commandment is declaring that the people must not let those gods outrank him. He must be the chief deity in their lives. But the Hebrew indicates that when God says before me, he is saying in my presence. His presence, of course, is ambiguous. He is omnipresent. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he basically is saying that when a person worships anything apart from him, whether the person lives in Israel, Canaan, Philistia, or anywhere else, he engages in an act of idolatry because there is only one God. The second commandment reinforces the first with its blanket uh, prohibition, prohibition of all forms of idolatry. Later, in the Pentateuch, we find striking statement of monotheism. It appears in the Shema, ancient Israel's confession of its belief in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the prophetic books, we see an almost constant diatribe against the false gods of other religions. These gods are not seen as competing deities, but as useless idols. 
In fact, the prophets characteristically make fun of people who worship trees, statues, and other things they would have made with their own hands, as if a block of wood could be inhabited by an intelligent being. They ridicule the ideas of animism and polytheism consistently. These affirmations of monotheism are a startling dimension of the Old Testament faith because of the rarity of such assertions in the ancient world. Most of the cultures of antiquity from which we have historical records were not monotheistic. Some have argued that the Egyptians were the first monotheists because of their worship of Ra, the sun god, but there is uniqueness in the monotheism that was native to the Old Testament faith. The idea that there is one God was firmly established in the religion of Israel from the earliest pages of the Old Testament. If God is one, how can he be three? It is precisely because of this clear teaching of monotheism that the doctrine of the Trinity is so problematic. When we come to the New Testament, we find the Church affirming the notion of monotheism, but also declaring that God the Father is divine, God the Son is divine, and God the Holy Spirit is divine. We have to understand that this distinction, that the, the distinctions in the Godhead do not refer to His essence. They do not refer to a fragmentation or compartmentalization of the very being of God. How then can we maintain the Old Testament doctrine of monotheism in the light of the clear New Testament affirmation of the triune character of the biblical God? Augustine once wrote, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. To understand how the doctrine of the Trinity came to be such an important article of the Christian faith, we need to see that there was a development of the Church's understanding of the nature of God based on the Scriptures. When we look into the Scriptures, we see that we call in theology we see what we call in theology progressive revelation. This is the idea that, as time goes by, God unfolds more and more of His plan of redemption. He gives more and more of His self-disclosure by means of revelation. The fact that there is this progress in revelation does not mean that God reveals in the Old Testament or that what God reveals in the Old Testament he then contradicts in the New Testament. Progressive revelation is not corrective, whereby the latest unveiling of God rectifies a previous mistake in revelation. Rather, new revelation builds on what was given in the past, expanding what God has made known. Therefore, we do not see a manifest teaching of God's triune nature on the first page of Scripture. There are hints of it very early in the Old Testament, but we do not have full information about the Trinitarian character of God in the Old Testament. That information comes later, in the New Testament. So, we have to trace the development of this doctrine throughout redemptive history to see what the Bible is actually saying about these things. All right, next Wednesday, we will start chapter two, and we will look at the biblical witness, how the Bible reveals God as being a God of Trinity. And now we pray. O Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Let your peace rule in our hearts, and may it be our strength and our song. We commit ourselves to your care and to keeping this day. Let your grace be mighty in us and sufficient for us. Keep us from sin. Give us the rule over our own spirits and prevent us from speaking unadvisedly with our lips. May we live together in peace and holy love and do your command and do command your blessing upon us even life forevermore. Prepare us for all the events of the day, for its joys as well as for its trials. 
Give us grace to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow in the steps of our Lord and Master. And now, together with the saints, we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you.